0: Welcome to Glam City. My name's Anna Clark and I'm a historian at the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS. On Glam City, we speak to the hardworking people in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. That's the G-L-A-M in GLAM. Believe it or not, this is our third season. And on this episode of GLAM City, we're discussing Australia's shifting understanding of our own deep history with historian Billy Griffiths. Billy's a historian and researcher at Deakin University and an associate investigator with the ARC Centre for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage. Billy, welcome.
1: Thank you. Good to be
0: here. Now, can I ask, I guess, trying to get an archaeological approach, but maybe not so deep, um, when did your interest in archaeology and history begin? Could we do a little dig back in your own time?
1: Indeed. Um, so, actually, I wrote my first book on a very different topic. It was about the origins of the Australia-China diplomatic relationship and about Whitlam's visit to China in 1971. So, while I was finalising the, um, the the proofs for that, I got this opportunity, this invitation to join an archaeological excavation in Western Arnhem Land on Mirarr land, uh, uh, called Majidbebe. Um, I jumped at the opportunity. It's an amazing, uh, amazing site. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's this uh, just decorated rock wall uh, on the, on the Jawumba Massive, um, which is one of the last remnants of the Arnhem Land Plateau before it gives away to wet, scrubby plains. And I worked on that site for uh, seven weeks and I was there as a historian, not an archaeologist, so I had to earn my keep as the camp cook. Uh, so by day I would trawl through these ancient kitchens and by night, I would cook for a team of hungry archaeologists. Create
0: your own relics, or your own middens.
1: I suppose, yes. And uh, it was that experience that really kind of uh, stirred my desire to uh, to understand better the the deep history of this continent. The excavation during the day is is, is almost an act of wonder to think about such um, huge expanses of time. Uh, But then I was also uh, very interested in the response from our hosts, the Mirar people, who are actually uh, mobilising the deep time story that we're uncovering in their campaigns against uranium mining on their land. Uh, so it shows all the, uh, the, the, the politics and the, the struggle and, uh, and also the rich heritage mm. all bound up into this experience. I couldn't go back to di- diplomatic history. <laughs> uh, so I started thinking about this book and it's taken me six years to, yeah. to write this.
0: And is there something about doing history in a place you know you we associate historical scholarship with going to a library and imagining the past you know real leaps of imagination that you have to make from the microfilm reel you know into 19th century australia or whatever but here you were on country essentially mm. trying to or helping contribute to retrieving narratives which had been buried for many years i mean i assume some of them were still active in orally spoken and remembered and so on but is there something different in doing historical research in a place, in a sense? It's so different from our own, the ways we normally do history, say in libraries, or you know, you're know, you in front of the microfilm reader, you're sort of having to make this big leap of imagination into a place, but here you were already in the place. Did that create, and was that sort of a new way of doing history for you?
1: Absolutely, yeah. The historian R.H. Tawney used to say that a good historian needs strong boots, and I firmly believe that that's, that's, that's the case, and documents will always be at the heart of our discipline, but uh, I, in this, I am very interested in the, in the, the other archives that are uh, available to us to understand the past, and that includes um, thinking about other ways of remembering past events, um, whether that be in oral histories, ancestral stories, uh, or uh, through an archaeological eye, which sees history in in vegetation and landscapes, in in percussion marks and plant residue, in uh rock markings and in uh these these in Chelbins too so it, it it was a being on country being mm. uh in a landscape brings the history of that place to alive mm. and uh, and i find it as as a uh, as a writer as well as a historian i find a place an incredibly enabling device because it allows us to unpack all the different uh competing often contested cross cultural narratives that exist mm. when you're telling a story about a place, mm. or, or, or yeah, and then just it all happened there, and this is the one thing that unites.
0: Mm. Your book, Deep Time Dreaming, is you know beautifully evokes several places, and it's a real, I guess, expansive story, not only across time but also place. What is the book about? Can you tell us what it's about?
1: I suppose the core argument of the book is that when we talk about the last 230 years of Australian history. We need to do so in the context of over 60,000 years of human experience on this continent. And this book is about coming to terms with that deeper story. It's a history of some of the people, places and ideas that shape the way we think about ancient Australia. So the, the archaeologists I write about, I write about archaeologists and their relationships with archaeological sites across the continent. And they're poets, philosophers, adventurers, dreamers, but this is also the story of Aboriginal leaders and their fight to have a voice in decisions about their land and their heritage. And uh, that that struggle um, mm-hmm. has been a, uh, a, a slow process, but it's moments of confrontation as well as collaboration. But we've seen a remarkable shift in understanding in historical consciousness over the past half century. Uh, and that's not only... Um, th- about the time depth of Australia, which now um, the human history of this continent goes back 65,000 years. Uh, But also it's about uh, understanding that the Australian landscape is as much cultural as it is natural. Mm. It has been shaped by the hands and fire sticks of thousands of generations of Indigenous men and women. Mm.
0: You know, I grew up on a diet of history books where chapter one was indigenous history and the rest is the real history, if Mm. you like, in inverted commas. But the sort of history that you're describing is 400 pages of indigenous history and maybe one paragraph at the end of the book, which might cover, um, you know, European history or history of the history of Australia since since Europeans arrived. That's such a different conceptualisation of how we think about Australian history, isn't it?
1: Mm. And in the in the heritage world, there's often this arbitrary, quite arbitrary divide that's introduced uh, through legislation that you you deal with indigenous sites and you deal with non-indigenous sites, and uh, the, the pre-contact uh, indigenous sites, post-contact non-indigenous, and uh, in this book, I'm really trying to say that this deep time story continues today. It's 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 uh, there's no divide between uh, between prehistory and history. It's all part of the same story. And, uh, and there's no, in, no history of Australia that is non-Indigenous. Mm. Uh, there are Indigenous voices everywhere. Um, and uh, I try to uh, make room for them and, and, and uh, to, to tell their story in, in this book and, uh, and then also look uh, to the archaeological evidence to recover stories that have passed beyond memory or tradition and survive only by virtue of archaeology.
0: Did this present its own challenges and tensions?
1: Absolutely, and and I am, uh, I'm I'm non-Indigenous, I am, as Judith Wright put it, born of the conquerors. Australia is a country uh, with which I feel a strong affinity, but to which I still feel like I'm learning to belong. And uh, that's part of the reason I became a historian. Um, I wanted to better understand the past and character of the continent I love and I live in. Uh, So that led me on this journey in the first place. And yes, it's it's uh, a fraught territory. And I try and convey that shift in power and discipline over the past half century. Mm. Um, and uh, I hone in on these these episodes, which capture the, the shifting terrain. Mm. Um, so with telling the stories of, of Richard Gould and Betsy Gould in the Western Desert, for example, where they overestimated their... Uh, these are American anthropologists and archaeologists who went to work on the lands of the Nanyatjara people, in Punta Japa, um, a thousand kilometres west of Alice Springs, and they were formed close bonds with the society that lived there. But then shared secret sacred images of their time with the Nyungar people, and then uh, published those. And when uh, the the book returned to the community, I suppose the assumption they made was that they they thought that whatever they wrote wouldn't return to the community. That there were d- different worlds. Uh, between <laughs> remote Indigenous communities and Western society, and these worlds converged with dramatic and tragic consequences. Uh, and I write about that in the book, And uh, and but but in short, Gould came very close to being the first Australian archaeologist to get speared.
0: You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. You say that the book began out of a frustration with your own failures of imagination. Can you probe a little bit into that for us?
1: Of course. So w- when we talk about uh, the three strands of our Australian history, the, the Indigenous, the settler, and the multicultural pasts, it's still the first that we struggle most to co- comprehend and accommodate. It's back to what you're saying about this passing over Indigenous history in, in, a, in a paragraph or a page or a chapter. And that has a lot to do with the structures that marginalised uh, First Nations peoples throughout the 19th century the 20th century uh, that That silence that, that that Stanner described so well, uh, but it also has to do with the the sheer scale of uh, human antiquity on this continent how How do we understand uh, tens of millennia of of lived experience on this continent? Uh, how can we grapple with a history that extends back sixty five thousand years and this book is telling the story of, of trying to tell the story of that deep time history and and on present understandings Australia. Uh, was colonised some 65,000 years ago Mm. by a group of voyagers who travelled across a vast sea to a land that lay beyond the horizon. And over millennia, they they made the country their own through language, song, story and fire. They thrived in the extreme aridity of the central deserts and thrived in the ice caps of central Tasmania. And this book is about the dramatic transformations that they endured, survived and thrived Mm. in uh, so where they saw dunes form, species come and go, uh, lakes drive, volcanoes erupt, and the sea level rise, not one or two metres, but 125 metres. Uh, that's a remarkable story of transformation mm. and resilience. Mm. And uh, the coming to terms with that story is, uh, is the project of all everyone who, who lives on this continent mm. today.
0: You know, I, I'm I'm a historian who studies stuff from the 1990s and, you know, Howard's speech from 2003 or whatever. Mm-hmm. So how do I... How can someone like me understand what deep time is when, for me, history could be, you know, Paul Keating's Redfern Spark speech or... <laughs> <laughs> how do we get back another 10,000 years or 40,000 years or how do we inhabit those places? Well, I
1: think that the key is that in order to inhabit the deep past one has to view it through the present and, uh, and, and, and the, the tumultuous road of the past uh, couple of centuries um, so John McPhee the American writer John McPhee coined the phrase deep time as a twin to deep space um, because like deep space deep time demands that you in order to understand deep time you have to leave behind the world you thought you knew in order to confront the limits of your understanding but yeah, your past is always in the present. So I look in this book at the Redfern speech, at the, at the, at the political events uh, of, of the recent years. And uh, in fact, the, the day to 65,000 years, which came from that site I worked on, Madjabebe, was invoked, uh, invoked by Malcolm Turnbull straight after it was published. And he reveled in this deep time story and, uh, and spoke about his, his optimism for a reconciled Australia. And yet in his speech, he did not seek to address the estrangement Mm. that he was seeking to overcome. Uh, He did not refer to the recent history, the the rapes, the murders, the stolen children. Uh, And in order to engage with that deep time story, you have to do so through the lens of the recent history.
0: You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and while you're there, leave us a rating and let us know what you think. You're listening today to an amazing conversation with historian and archaeologist Billy Griffiths about his latest book, Deep time dreaming, uncovering ancient Australia. And we're talking about how do we, you know, historians are all time travellers, but how do we even get into this place called deep time? Does it require a leap of imagination that we're not used to, that we're not trained to do as historians? Does it require something else? It
1: requires an awareness of all the different sorts of archives available to historians. Like what? Uh, so the history imprinted in the land, mm-hmm. uh, the histories that are preserved. By, by communities, Indigenous communities who uh, preserve in their old traditions memories of the millennia long flood at the end of the last ice age. So it, it requires working with this in tandem with documents in mm. tandem with ethnography uh, in tandem with uh, ethno-history uh, trying to uh, imagine the past like what we'd imagine any past
0: And if we, you know, someone like me who's grown up studying history from universities, who's very comfortable in front of a microfilm reader, um, who does a lot of historical research with Trove. Is this a new way of doing history? Like, Does it require a different way of thinking about what history is and how do we get our hands dirty with, with some of these approaches and sources? Because well, I, th- I don't usually get my hands dirty.
1: <laughs> and I think that's an interesting reflection because uh, uh, the archaeo- um, what I'm writing about is what archaeologists have been doing um, in Australia since the 50s and really the 60s. And uh, so much of the work um, to understanding the history of this continent has come from the discipline mm. of archaeology. But because it is seen as being d- archaeology or prehistory, it's often divided from what we see as history. Mm. And yet, I opened the book with um, writing about John Mulvaney and Isabel McBride, who both regarded themselves as historians as well as archaeologists, and in John Mulvaney's case, primarily a historian.
0: So what were they doing? What did they do that sort of broke open the field of historical research?
1: So when uh, John Mulvaney began um, thinking about doing Australian archaeology in the early 50s, he first sifted through all the historical sources that we use, um, the, the, the microfilm material, and uh, tried to understand what had been done on Indigenous history up to this point. And what he confronted was a remar- remarkable lack of curiosity about time depth and antiquity. And, of course, he, he was helped out by, with the, he had in his pocket, the new tool of radiocarbon dating, um, and he sought to find a place where he could uh, challenge these kind of cultural evolutionary assumptions that, 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 that dictated, in Poulain's famous words, that Aboriginal people were an unchanging people in an unchanging land. And thus there would be no need to dig. There was no need. Excavation would be in vain because there was nothing to find. Uh, and he sought to challenge these assumptions by excavating a site. And he chose a site on the mouth of the Murray River on the land of what what he called um, Fromm's Landing, but which is now known by its proper name, Tangawa. And he uh, worked there. we gathered a motley crew of, of people, who, um, whoever he could gather from his the corridors of Melbourne University at the time.
0: <laughs> which, obliging PhD students.
1: Yes. And, and, and also, you know, there's quite a pedigree for Australian history there too. Mm. Uh, Greg Denning and Geoffrey Blaney were there on his early digs at Fromm's wow. Landing. And... Uh, He introduced to them the ideas, the archaeological techniques that he had learnt at Cambridge University, gone off to train and and, and study, and then he brought them back to Australian soil uh, and and, uh, gridded out this rock shelter and then excavated carefully, layer by layer, going down so that all artefacts that he recovered could be recorded in terms of their geographical distribution, Mm -hmm. spatial distribution, as well as their depth. And that is so vital because context is everything in archaeology, um, and uh, and that's what the collectors who would come before him mm. had failed to recognise. So those who combed the surface of sites were actually looting, destroying sites, in their curiosity uh, about stone tools, and they confounded Aboriginal culture with the stone tools that they left behind, mm. as opposed to treating the earth as an environmental archive as well as a cultural archive, and it. a a way of understanding transformative change, Mm. social change. Isabel McBride took a slightly different approach. She viewed the entire landscape as an archaeological site, and in her surveys across northern New South Wales and New England, she set about looking for the cultural and the natural, searching for uh, middens and massacre sites, scarred trees and surface scatters, as well as shelters that she could excavate in to try and find surface um, some kind of time depth. But as much as anything, these early pioneers in archaeology, such was a lack of understanding of Indigenous history. They were focused on introducing concepts such as cultural change and antiquity to lay understandings of Indigenous Australia. So, so much of that early work was about o- outreach. Mm. And, and through those public meetings, and Isabel McBride famously said that she thought that, uh, that one could find out as much about the history of a place from having a cup of tea with a local than... Spending a week in the archives.
0: In a way, these archaeological pioneers, as you describe them, are populating the past or extending out the discipline of history. You know, there's a sense, having read nineteenth century, a lot of nineteenth century historians, that history arrived with colonisation mm. because the discipline of history was a Western discipline, and before Europeans came, it's like ground zero for history in Australia. But these archaeologists, archaeologists, actually not only populating the past as some amorphous thing, but actually um, richly populating it with generations and Mm. eras and eons and cultures that move and mix and mingle. But the challenges of that, I mean, did they get resistance from within the sort of history community in Australia when they were working?
1: Yes, yes. A lot of, uh, or alone amongst their colleagues in using Material culture as a historical source, and when they said that, when Isabel said that she was an archaeologist, she was greeted with the question, "But what is there for you to do here?" They were also met with resistance from the people whose heritage they were investigating, because they were, as you say, laying out the landscape, finding, finding uh, out about this deep past when it was actually uh, lived. <laughs> it was something that, uh, that, that many Indigenous communities felt they had always known. And uh, so that, that is, is at the heart of the book, that uh, mm. how can you discover a path that has been experienced by thousands of generations? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I write about leaders such as Alice Kelly, the Mati Mati Elder, who um, when she heard about the archaeological work that was going on in western New South Wales especially the, the around Mungo Lady, she wrote to the National um, Parks and Wildlife Service and said, what are you doing on my land? And she was particularly concerned about the disturbance of Aboriginal bones because bones are not skeletons, they're ancestors, spirits, mm. relatives. So she's asked, what are you doing? These are my tribal people. Mm. And that led to a process of involving of uh, that kind of activism led to the eventually the repatriation of, of Mungo Lady and in November ni- uh, last year, Mungo Man. Mm.
0: The limits of the sources are really important here too, aren't they? I mean, that, that argument that these aren't just, they're not just bones, they're not just relics from the past, they're a person who lived in the past and had a life and maybe had loves and... Eight and had feelings, mm. you know, writing rich and detailed histories about these people depends so much on the sources we have available to us. Is it possible to write about these people's pasts in deep time to really know them the same way we might, you know, imagine a chimney sweeper in London in the 19th century or a Jewish refugee in the 1930s? What's the leap of imagination required to kind of, to have a sort of an empathic engagement with with people in deep time as as opposed to recent time?
1: It's very hard to find individuals in deep time and even individual actions in an archaeological deposit. Uh, You can sometimes find a pit that was dug out and buried and covered over, but what does that tell you about someone's uh, soul and and, and their their spiritual life? That's why finds like the the emergence of Mungo Lady and the emergence of Mungo Man um, were so radical and they transformed uh, global understandings of Australian history and also the complexity of Indigenous societies because these were ritual burials. Um, They were involved ochre, a sacred resource, that had been traded to the region from vast distances. So they spoke to the uh, immense chains of connection across um, the the continent but also the deep ceremonial and spiritual lives of people beside fertile lakes 40,000 years ago. So the the insights aren't about who, what was the name of that chimney sweep? Um, but they're much more about what was the context in which mm. that person lived. Mm. Uh, and I, I suppose in in my book, I really, I, I, I dive into the characters who, the archaeologists and the passions and methods of the people who are trying to understand this past as a way to really bring characters into the story. So there's, in many ways, this is a collective biography of, of Australian archaeology.
0: Mm. And it's a device to, in a sense, keep populating this history because it is a confluence of both those people from the past whose remains are in Lake Mungo, for example, but also the people from the present who are trying to understand and and make sense of that, mm. both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Glam City, what's on for history in Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and your favourite podcast app. How do you think those archaeological findings in Australia have informed our own sort of national sensibility and historical consciousness?
1: Well, it's been a dramatic shift, hasn't it? Uh, from going in the 1950s to think thinking that Australia was uh, the last continent to have humans in it, to now understanding that uh, this this continent has a 65,000-year history, that people moved here pretty quickly in the grand sweeping movements out of Africa, and that Australia is a crucial piece of that global jigsaw puzzle. I mean, I think uh, you can see the way that archaeological dates and um, archaeology cannot help but interact with these grand symbolic narratives, and it readily translates into icons and dates, uh, which are then used for political purposes in order to kind of smooth over the history of dispossession, uh, which is not the way to do it, um, or also by Aboriginal activists. So soon after the date of 40,000 years emerged from uh, John Mulvaney and Wilford Shawcross's excavations at Lake Mungo, it appeared outside the uh, Aboriginal tem- tent embassy and in, in rallies and campaigns for land rights and in all these vital documents. It's, 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 we've seen this shift from a from thinking about australia as this 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 young na- nation a footnote to empire to a continent with a deeply layered indigenous mm. history and that's the the great revelation when you think on this deep time perspective the australian nation becomes just a shallow stratum in this deeply mm. layered indigenous place
0: and what does that understanding mean for um, some of the pressing questions facing Australia today, like reconciliation, do you think?
1: Yeah, so I I finished the book with the Uluru statement from the heart, which I think is one of the most profound documents in Australian history. Uh, it is a the first unified First Nations voice. It's come about through this exhaustive process process of of uh, community consultation across the continent, and what it has presented is a uh, uh, a very modest request, really, you know, Indigenous voice to Parliament and a Makarata Commission overseeing uh, processes of agreement-making and then also uh, truth-telling, um, like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The, the exciting thing about the Uluru Statement is that it's, um, it really envisages a strong role for history in our national life. It asks all Australians to acknowledge our past and then to reimagine our future. When I talk about the deep past, I really don't think we should blithely appropriate that deep time story. It comes with obligations to, and one of those is to respect and listen Mm. to the people who know this land as Mm. their home and have done for millennia.
0: Well, in the spirit of imagining our futures, I'm going to imagine my future over the next little while for what's happening in our next history segment, the Glam Slam segment, and I hope you are going to imagine your history future in the next little while, Billy. What is coming up for you in your history diary?
1: I am speaking at the Brisbane Writers Festival on the 7th of September. Friday, the 7th of September, I'll be speaking with Henry Reynolds, um, who's just recently revised his classic, This Whispering in Our Hearts. Yes. And also Patrick Nunn, who's a geographer looking at the limits of memory, um, or his book is called The The Edge of Memory.
0: And if people are interested in attending, for those listeners in the Brisbane, Greater Brisbane Metropolitan Area, I assume they can go to the Brisbane Writers Festival website. They certainly can. It'll be a a a great conversation. Great. For me, I am going to be going crazy in History Week 2018. So much to see, so little time. Lisa Murray is giving the History Lecture And I'm also going to go and try and see Life and Death in the Library, uh, State Library of New South Wales on the 7th September as part of History Week. For all History Week activities, just go to the History Council of New South Wales website. And even if you're not in Sydney, all over New South Wales, they'll be running um, spin-offs, lectures, visits, talks. So get involved. It's a great opportunity to live history for a week and show everybody that it's not dead, it's not in the past, um, that it's alive for all of us. But that brings us to the close of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website at 2SER.com. And you can also search for us in your favourite podcast app and hit us up on Twitter you'll find me under at Anna Hope Clark and my co-conspirator when she turns up Tamson at Cap and Gown and are you tweeting Billy?
1: I am I'm on Billy underscore Griffiths
0: this podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3 if you want to get in touch please email us glamcity at 2SER.com and thank you so much to our special guest Billy Griffiths for coming in today and talking about all things history and archaeology
1: thank you very much for having me Glam out.
0: (laughs) Glam out. You remembered. Well done.